You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The Bowery Boys episode 309, Landmarks Live. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey, Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And boy, do we have a show for you today, Greg. You know, first of all, um, we have finally broken out of our confining little podcast recording room, and we are here thrilled to be on the stage of the famous Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. But Greg, we're not alone, because we are sitting on a stage being looked at by a live studio audience. Wow, what a rambunctious <laughs> group of people you are. I love it. <laughs> and smart, too. I would uh, even, uh, and, uh, and maybe a little landmark curious. I yeah, think. yeah, definitely landmark curious. Well, we're excited and honored to be part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival again this year. Last year, we actually recorded a little show that we called Wit Mania, which celebrated the life and the 200th anniversary of the birth of Walt Whitman. For this show, actually, we're going to do something that is, I think, far more high concept. Oh, yeah. High concept and downright daring. Or as daring as we get on the Bowery Boys. (laughs) Um, We're about to take a deep dive into the often confusing world of landmarking and historic districts. We're going to tackle the very structures and neighborhoods that help define New York as we know it. Everyone here has their own favorite landmark, and we will, we will be mentioning a few in detail, but mostly today's show is really about the idea of landmarking, the process of landmarking, the magic of landmarking. <laughs> when did New York begin to protect its landmarks? When did these important structures even begin to be known as landmarks? What protections have actually been put into place in the ensuing years to protect those structures? Now, fortunately, we will not be making sense of this by ourselves here. We'll soon be joined on stage by landmarking experts from the Preservation Archive Project, the Landmarks Conservancy, and the Historic Districts Council. And we want everybody here, sitting and standing, or listening at home, to leave this episode with a better understanding of how landmarking and historic districts work. And also why the city should even be involved in landmarking in the first place, if you think about it. 
the city is basically imposing rules about how someone else's private property, in most cases, should look and be maintained. Ooh, the dramatic foreshadowing. <laughs> but right now we need to stop for a second and actually define some terms because this has been kind of abstract so far. Yeah, so let's, this is the situate the listener part. Yes. Um, what are landmarks? Because, of course, the word means a whole lot of different things and not really just about buildings. That's right. I'm glad you asked, Greg. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a landmark can be something that marks the boundary of land, like a stone or a tree. It can also mean, quote, an event or development that marks a turning point. So like a landmark ruling of the Supreme Court, for instance. That's right. But we're talking about the next definition down, a, quote, structure such as a building of unusual historical and usually aesthetic interest, especially one that is officially designated and set aside for preservation. So in today's show, we're, we're going to be speaking specifically about New York City historical landmarks, which are all protected by law and designated landmarks by the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission. Now, did you know that there are four categories of landmarks? This is very interesting. There are, of course, individual things like a building, a skyscraper, a church, or a bridge. Things, things that you can see outside. The second category is interiors. So, for example, I think one of New York's most famous interiors is unsurprisingly landmarked, and that is the main concourse of the Grand Central Terminal. That's right. A third type of landmark, outdoor spaces, even views. These are called scenic landmarks. For example, Central Park is a landmark. It's a scenic landmark. And then finally, there can be a cluster or collection of buildings, even districts of buildings, and these are called historic districts, such as the Fort Greene Historic District. So when you walk around New York, you'll see those historic districts identified by their brown street signs. So Tom, how many actual protected landmarks exist in New York City today, at this moment? Well, throughout the five boroughs, there are more than 1,400 of those individual landmarks. But if you count all of the protected structures that are contained within the city's 150 historic districts and extensions, the number increases to more than 37,000 protected structures. And then what about, we had interiors and also scenic landmarks. Right, there are 120 interior landmarks and there are 11 scenic landmarks in the city. It's amazing because these landmarks, like museums and parks and whatever shape and size, are among all of our favorite places in the city. In fact, many of the subjects that we record on our podcast are landmarks or end up being landmarks. So we often end our shows with, in 1982, blah, 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 became a New York City landmark. Yeah, that's true. Or to put it another way, landmarking has actually protected most of the old buildings and historic districts that we tend to record shows about. Mm -hmm. Our shows would be much different if there were no landmark protections to protect those spaces. And New York would be very different. Uh, if landmark protections didn't exist. Our daily walks through the city would be completely different. In fact, to illustrate that point, just consider this little walk that I took uh, just this week to the main branch of the New York Public Library. In fact, I'm going to show it to you on the official Discover NYC Landmarks map, which listeners 
at home can find it nyc.gov or just by searching for NYC Landmarks map. Yeah, if you're taking a break from work, just like go to this map and look around like where you live or where you work and see what kind of landmarks or historic districts are around you. Yeah, you see the different kinds of landmarks, color-coded. Well, so to get to the library, I got off the subway at Times Square. Now, the nearest landmark to 42nd and 7th Avenue is actually the New Amsterdam Theater, just across the street, um, which you can see here is, is both landmarked outside and is an interior landmark. But let's turn around and walk west yeah, toward because, the library. Yeah, we don't want to go further west, because then you'd be at... Uh, further east. Port, or oh, wait, no, wait. We're walking <laughs> east toward the library. No, you don't want to go west because that's Port Authority bus terminal. Right. Hello. Right. No. Which is not protected. In fact, please change it as soon as possible. Someone, please. Um, no, when we're walking, when we're walking east, um, you will be passing the Knickerbocker Hotel and uh, then the Bush Tower, which was notable for its early use of setbacks. And then as you're walking, you're at... Bryant Park. Bryant Park, which is a scenic landmark uh, designated in 1974. Now, obviously, next to the park is the library. And so which type of landmark is the library? Well, you can... Several, right? Yeah, because you can see on the map that it's colored pink for individual landmark because the, the public library became a landmark in 1967. But there are also two blue dots on it. Uh, because the main stairs in the central hallway and the, the lobby were landmarked, interior landmarks, in 1974. But the Rose Reading Room and the Catalog Room and some of the other interiors were landmarked only in 2017. So in this like tiny little walk in Midtown, you encountered several types of landmarks. And some of them are obvious, and some of them are less obvious but are very notable. Yeah, and taken as a whole... They make walking around New York a really rich experience. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I feel myself drawn to these historic districts and landmarks almost like a magnet. But not everything beautiful and interesting is landmarked in the city, obviously. No. And some of this actually might surprise you. So we're going to do a little a tiny game here. I have a short list of notable New York City structures. So I'm going to say the name of the object, the structure. I want you to applaud if you think it is an official designated New York City landmark or historic district. Okay. Oh, are you ready for this? Okay. All right. So I'm going to say the name, applaud, and then I'll tell you the answer. The Empire State Building. Oh. Clearly, right? It's landmark, obviously. Yes, both the building and the ground floor interior were landmarked in 1981. Okay. All right, so how about the old music publishing district known as Tin Pan Alley nearby on 28th Street? Of course those buildings are landmarked, right, Greg? No, until just a few weeks ago. In December of 2019, they are New among New York City's newest landmarks. All right, the High Line. The High Line, the old New York elevated freight railroad. Oh, clearly, of course. I mean, it's got to be landmarked, right? That is not a landmark. How could that not be a landmark? Uh, the Lower East Side Tenement District. Of course it is. Look at the history. No, I just made that up, actually. Most of the Lower East Side is unprotected. Which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. 
And finally, I don't know how uh, many of you got here, but about eight blocks away from the Bell House here is the Carroll Street Bridge, which is a retractable bridge over the Gowanus Canal that was constructed in 1889. What do you think? It's just so obscure, it must be a landmark, right? Yeah, so it was landmarked in 1987, but notably, it's one of only a, only a very, very few number of landmarks in the Gowanus Canal area. Which we're also working on. So, landmarks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, there's even a tree growing in Brooklyn mm-hmm. that's a landmark. Yeah, there actually is. There is. And a lot of people, when they think landmarks, generally speaking, especially if they listen to our show, might think that this whole landmarks preservation movement grew out of one moment in New York City history. The tearing down of old Penn Station beginning in 1963. So pour one out for old Penn Station, everyone. Pour one out. Yeah, in fact, um, we should be playing an old Penn Station drinking game today because we are here in a bar. Yes, yeah, so know? take a drink if we say the words Penn Station yes. or Robert Moses, okay? I always take a drink when I hear Robert <laughs> Moses. No. But in fact, Penn Station was more of a turning point for landmarking. It didn't create the landmarking movement uh, because New Yorkers had been concerned with preserving their structures for more than a century mm-hmm. before its demolition. So let's wind back to the early 19th century when nobody was preserving anything, right? In fact, those early Dutch and English settlers did a rather fine job of eradicating any evidence of the previous occupants of this area, the Lenape. The Lenape live on only in words here, pretty much. Manahata, Hoboken, and, of course, the Gowanus. In 1804, the New York Historical Society was founded by several prominent New Yorkers as a museum, uh, but also as a way to preserve the memory of the Revolutionary War and of early New Yorkers. The society was formed, quote, to preserve eyewitness evidence of their own historical moments, fearing dust and obscurity would be the inevitable fate of accounts and artifacts if left in the hands of private individuals. But what about the places of the past? So like the houses and the churches and the cemeteries. In the early 19th century, New York and the city of Brooklyn were rapidly growing with such little care about the history that stood in its way. Some old-timers, including one writer in the New York Evening Post in 1832, wrote, The old parts of the city are undergoing the perpetual process of renovation. The old dwellings of the Dutch settlers have disappeared and given place to modern edifices. By the 1870s, we were 100 years gone from the start of the Revolutionary War. And these cries took on a little bit more urgency then. Those who remembered the war were dead, And America, and New York actually in particular, had lots of physical connections to the nation's founding. A lot of buildings, and many of them were in danger of being destroyed. So by the 1890s, an early preservation movement began to appear as places were preserved, not because they once meant something, like bones in a museum, but because they still had meaning. They were, in fact, the cultural anchors of the city. In 1895, Andrew Haswell Green founded the American Scenic and Historic Preservation Society, which was New York's very first preservation lobby. It was built from Green's successful bid the previous year to help protect New York City Hall, which had been in danger of being torn down then. 
the society would be responsible for saving many old classics that we love, including Alexander Hamilton's Old Home, mm-hmm. Hamilton Grange, and the 17th century era Conference House in Staten Island. We did an entire episode, number 300, on Andrew Haswell Green. But this shows that before, even before the days of landmarking laws, just because a building was notable or historic didn't protect it. As a matter of fact, one case in point that we have recently spoken about, uh, one place, is something called St. John's Chapel. Now, this was a church built in 1803 that was at the center of the old St. John's Park neighborhood in the area of today's Tribeca. Throughout the 19th century, the neighborhood became more industrial, and the fine homes were replaced by a freight terminal uh, and warehouses. But that beautiful church remained, and its steeples helped define the city skyline. But in 1918, the city decided to widen Varick Street as an extension of 7th Avenue, and poor little St. John's Chapel stood in its way. The results were unsurprising. The headline from the New York Times, October 6, 1918, St. John's Chapel raised. The Times explained that one of the choicest specimens of Georgian architecture had been lost. About a decade after that, the area would change again as the train station sitting atop the former park was itself demolished to make way for the Holland Tunnel Exit and Traffic Roundabout. (laughs) Not a landmark. (laughs) (laughs) But let's not get too depressed, uh, because some help would come in the form of a federal law. In 1935, the Historic Sites Act would give birth to the National Landmarks Program. Thanks to the efforts of former Manhattan Borough President and preservation advocate George McEnany, Federal Hall in Lower Manhattan became the first historic building in a major city to receive federal protection under the act. Literally, federal protection, which is quite different from state or local protection. Uh, Now, I must pause here for a second and point out something interesting, because we have been talking about City Hall and Federal Hall and Hamilton Grange and all these places. These first preservationists were interested in saving old buildings of historic interest. At the same time, literally in like the same decades, here by the start of the 20th century, organizations like the Municipal Art Society and leaders like Albert Bard were promoting an entire new wave of exceptional architecture in New York City through a philosophy of beautification that became known as the City Beautiful Movement. Buildings that were constructed by the world's greatest architects during this period. Grand Central, Pennsylvania Station, the Flatiron Building, architectural marvels that would themselves need stronger protections just a few decades later. Because by the 1930s, preservation pioneers like McEnany and Bard were now fighting against a new threat, the automobile. All kinds of buildings were being demolished, not because they were deteriorating, but because they were located in the way of some proposed parkway or tunnel. For example, in 1941, the construction of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel threatened the destruction of the New York Aquarium, which was housed in the historic fort down the battery known as Castle Clinton. Unfortunately, the fish were banished to Coney Island, where many of them are still today. Happy. But but thanks to the efforts of early preservationists, Castle Clinton was saved. 
And I'm sure everybody here can guess uh, which powerful city planner was responsible for that <laughs> near destruction. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our friend Robert Moses. Drink, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, ironically, we might actually be able to thank Moses in an indirect way for provoking and sort of indirectly mobilizing mm -hmm. New York City's preservation movement. New York had structures that were more than 200 years old by this time. And we also had city, beautiful civic structures and Beaux-Arts masterpieces. And yet suddenly, at this moment, it seemed like anything could be totally torn down to make way for a Moses highway project. Residents, at this moment, began to feel emboldened under the reign of Moses and began fighting back to protect their neighborhoods. And they were emboldened, but it would be quite a struggle because New York was actually a construction zone. It was fighting for its own survival. Industries were moving out, New Yorkers were taking off for the suburbs, and city planners here and around the world were floating ideas about ways to make cities more modern and automobile-friendly. And at the same time, by the 1950s, it also saw the beginning of what was called the Brown Stoner Movement, which is young New York professionals moving into older neighborhoods like Brooklyn Heights. And as homeowners, they began to organize and fight for their survival. But the fact um, that so many of these historic buildings still exist today is really the credit of one major piece of legislation. And that is a 1965 New York City landmarks law, which was signed into, into law by Mayor Wagner. The law was intended to protect landmarks and neighborhoods. Now this was huge, this was enormous. We're only able to even have this show and to talk about what we're talking about because of the passage of this act of legislation. It was such a big deal that we thought we would go to a true expert in landmarking, the man who literally wrote the book about this the This book. This book. <laughs> yes, Anthony C. Wood is the founder and chair of the New York Preservation Archive Project and is the author of Preserving New York, Winning the Right to Protect the City's Landmarks. He's, he's an author, historian, and grant maker. He's worked for the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, and for over 20 years, he was a member of the adjunct faculty of the Historic Preservation Program at the Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Welcome, Anthony. Buy the book. <laughs> Great to be here. My God, a room full of preservationists interested in preservation history. It on a Sunday be, afternoon. It must be the drinks. It's the drinks. <laughs> the drinks are helping, but... So your book, you start your book, Preserving New York, with a chapter on the myth of Penn Station. You call it the myth of Penn Station. Referring to the destruction of McKinney and White's masterpiece, which began in 1963, two years before the landmark law was fully enacted. So could you tell us a little bit about that myth? Why do you call it a myth? Well, for years, the, it, was, it was this great powerful narrative. New York made the big mistake of tearing down Penn Station, and mm -hmm. out of its rubble, you know, like the Phoenix, came the Landmarks <laughs> Law. <laughs> Redemption. In reality, the reason that's a myth is people had been pushing to get some sort of legal protection for landmarks for decades and decades and decades. And the myth is actually so destructive because it removes, it really erases 
50 plus years of preservation history. And it also kind of suggests that the landmarks law was a knee-jerk reaction mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the destruction of Penn Station, whereas it was a thoughtful response to a problem that had been facing New York for decades. So to get down to the brass tacks here, what exactly did this landmarks law 1965, what did it do? Like, what did it establish? It basically created an orderly process by which the city of New York could decide which of its buildings and neighborhoods of historic and cultural and aesthetic value should be preserved and brought into the future. The law did not intend to save every landmark quality building. The law wanted to make sure that no landmark quality building was lost without an opportunity to be saved. So it created this legal process, created the Landmarks Commission, which had the uh, responsibility of identifying buildings and then deciding if they were worthy of preservation, then designating them, and then regulating them. And some people are a little amazed to realize that a designated New York City landmark can be demolished. But it can only be demolished if you go through a very specific process and make certain findings. And only a handful have been demolished. But that's also what kept the law kind of to be fair and pass legal tests. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the legality of yep. the law, sort of what was, I mean... So how can you regulate private property on the grounds of aesthetics, right? Thank you. That was my <laughs> yes. question. Yes, that's, that's I mean, sort of what, what, what yep. right does a government yep. have mm-hmm. to make this call? Well, and that was the question that... Albert Bard, who is depicted on my lapel, and by the way, guys, I, I know the radio audience won't see this, but I want you each to have oh, your own no, Albert you. Bard button. Albert Bard button, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. So, so why do you have a picture of Albert Bard on your jacket if you're a preservationist? Because he, for decades, focused on this legal question of what's the legal basis to regulate private property. And he started back in 1913 with an effort, a city commission that was trying to control advertising of all things, that was taking over New York. Mm -hmm. And this little commission concluded that there was no way to regulate that without a constitutional amendment in the New York State Constitution that would authorize the city to regulate on the ground of aesthetics. Uh And so he started that in 1913. In 1938, he was still at it when there was a New York State Constitution and he tried to get something passed called the Patrimony of the People Act, which would have given the cities of New York the authority to regulate private property for historic and cultural and aesthetic reasons. It sank like a rock. That was 1938. Finally, in 1954, he drafted a piece of legislation that would authorize, give the cities around New York if they wanted, the ability of enabling them, and it's called enabling legislation, and it was passed in 1956, which enabled cities, if they wanted, in New York State to pass a law to protect the history, culture, and beauty of those cities. And New York did. And New York City did, but as you might have, if you pointed out, New York did it in 1965. Right. They had the authority in 1956. Wow. So your minds are saying, what happened between 1956 and 1965? I'm I'm guessing there was a lot of political pressure. There are a lot of conflicting interests here. They didn't want to get this through? Actually, not so much early on. It was almost inertia. 
A couple of interesting things happened in 1956. This gets passed in Albany, but in 1956, the city of New York basically started a process to redo its zoning resolution, right? And that became the big issue from 1956 to 1960. And that basically sucked all the oxygen out of the room around mm -hmm. trying to legally protect landmarks. The notion was you got to get this zoning thing done first. Which they would in 61. Right? Uh, it passed in 1960 to be enacted in, in 1961. And so in fact, that it was when that was passed that finally the push to somehow protect landmarks could then move forward. Mm. In fact, when Penn Station was demolished, there was a Landmarks Commission in place, a mayoral Landmarks Commission, <laughs> yeah. but it had no legal authority. Its charge was to begin to identify buildings and to draft a Landmarks law. It's a, the demolition of Penn Station starts in 63, but the Landmarks law comes in, is signed in 65, and you write about something else that happens in 1964, I yeah. believe, up at 79th and 5th Avenue, this is another beautiful building, the Brokaw Mansion, which found itself slated for demolition. Can you tell us why that's important? Yeah, this is actually a building that, that should be as well recognized as Penn Station. By the way, you're supposed to drink when I say Penn Station. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. You guys are not right. keeping up here. But Robert the, the, Moses yeah. wasn't interested. <laughs> that's right. That's, that, that's right. Second drink, right? Uh, so the, the Brokaw Mansion become important. This Landmarks Commission that had no legal power had actually identified this as a landmark building, and there was a plaque on it, right? You know, plaque, people uh -huh. appreciated it. Sure. Uh, but in this, in night, so a little sequence, in the spring of 1964, the draft landmarks legislation actually was put on Mayor Wagner's desk, where it sat collecting dust. <laughs> uh, in the fall of 1964, coincidentally with a press release announcing something like International Landmarks Week, in the same week, the announcement came forward that the Brokaw mansions were gonna be demolished. And that, you know, they've been identified as important, all this attention. There are now rallies in front of the Rokaw Mansion on the Upper East Side. Now, there had already for years been rallies involving hundreds of people in Greenwich Village and Brooklyn Heights demanding landmark protection. But now it's finally the Upper East Side. We're you know, getting into it. So that was threatened and created a lot of attention. And it was like, what do we do? What do we do? And that spurred the legislation, the draft legislation to move from Wagner's desk to a hearing at the city council in December of 1964. We then have two other quick events. Over that holiday season, the Percy Pine Building, a beautiful building on Park Avenue, was threatened with demolition, saved by an anonymous donor at the last minute. Mm. Headlines saying, we don't, need, you know, we don't need anonymous donors saving buildings, we need landmarks laws saving buildings. Finally, in February, it was a Friday night, the Broadcom Mansion started to be demolished. And even the mayor's office uh, was calling around. And it was, the irony was there was interest in reusing the building. I mean, these buildings were not exactly derelict, you know, Fifth Avenue there, 79th Street, beautiful, impressive. Land, you know, they looked like landmarks, right? Uh, and this is the, north, the northeast corner. This is the northeast corner, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a pair, you know, because there's a, a nice building on the southeast corner that's, that's still there. So very, you know, very iconic, very central, very in your face. Mm -hmm. Headline New York Times editorial, The Rape of the Brokaw Mansion. Pretty powerful <laughs> language for New York Times 1965. So it was the demolition of the Brokaw Mansion that then really kicked the city council into gear to do something and mm. pass the law. It passes in 1965, right. and do they just immediately start designating landmarks? Do they well, just walk nope. out? And 
Yeah, I mean, you have to understand a couple of things. There were lists that had been developed going back to the early 1950s by the Municipal Art Society, Society of Architectural Historians, that began to identify what are the buildings and places should be protected in New York if we had a law. So there's a lot of work that had been done that established that. Then we have the Landmarks Commission created in 1962, but with no legal authority, and it was working off that same list, expanding it, identifying buildings like the Brokaw Mansion. So they had been doing their homework. Mm -hmm. So once the law was passed, they were able to go into business. But one important thing people need to remember is when the Landmarks Law was actually signed by the mayor, standing next to him were the city council members, but he basically said, look, if this law creates too many problems for the real estate industry, we'll amend it right away. So the Landmarks Commission, when it first went into business, and I think for many years since, was very conservative in the application of the law. The most important thing for the early Landmarks Commission and chairman was to preserve the law itself. It was a new agency, an untested law, mm -hmm. uh, so they were very careful. They wanted to avoid lawsuits in the very early years of the commission. Mm -hmm. We can't really talk about landmarking history in the 1970s without bringing up that other major railroad station, Grand Central Terminal. I mean, and this went all the way up to the Supreme Court, right? So how, something like Grand Central, which we treasure, it's one of our great treasures of New York City, how could it have possibly been demolished or transformed if it was landmarked, right? So it was landmarked when, when It was when an this exterior happened. landmark. Okay. The interior was designated later. They came in with, to seek a certificate of appropriateness, which is the term of the law, to build a 50-plus story building on top of the station, which also would have impacted the facade and, and other things. And though I told you the Landmarks Commission was being very conservative, the commission basically decided that if the law wasn't strong enough to protect Grand Central Terminal from such an awful, just something horrendous, <laughs> then it was, risk, it was worth risking the entire law. Because if it couldn't do this, if it couldn't save the one station that was still here, that was still a jewel and a gem of the city. And so they held their ground. And it mm. was a very rough ride uh, through the courts. Uh, the city lost uh, several decisions at the early court level. And it finally went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which and, upheld the law. But the gist of the, the sort of property owner, the Penn Central, I guess, at the time. Uh, was it? Penn Central, really. Penn Central was saying, look, this is our building. We're a private yeah. enterprise, and we're trying to operate a, a railroad in the mid-20th century. It ain't working, um, and we need to make changes to this so that we can literally stay in business. Well, they wanted to make changes to basically make money. I mean, right. it wasn't that they needed... They mm -hmm. didn't need to change the station in order to have it function as a terminal anymore. I mean, but right. they wanted to develop the property. Well, this goes back to kind of the origins of the law. So like, what's the legal basis that allows government to regulate property? And, and it's from the police powers. Mm. And the police powers were expanded. And in fact, there was a 1954 Supreme Court decision, Berman v. Parker, which basically said cities, just that they can use the police power for health and safety and welfare, they can also use it. The city has the right to be beautiful. Mm. And mm. even though it wasn't a case about preservation, but it established and articulated the principle that the city has a right to be beautiful, just the way it has the right to be safe, and just the way it can regulate property for other sorts of, of reasons from planning and the like. So it's not as radical a concept uh, when you look at it in, that, in the context. So all of these different fights, Penn Station, the Brokaw Mansion, Grand Central, um, they involved activists, 
like oh. we see here. Yeah. And all of these campaigns to save these buildings or protect these districts. In 1998, you founded the, the New York Preservation Archive Project to preserve those stories, right? These types of preservation battles. Right. Although that project goes back to the 1980s. Could you kind of tell us about that? Well, when I came to New York as a young preservationist, you know, and wanting to get in the mix and save buildings back in 1978. Uh, oh, I shouldn't have used a date, should I? Oh, it's um, okay. It's well, okay. It's a mistake. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to I have a history background in history. I, I want to learn about the history of the preservation movement, right? Because that's, I want to be part of it. I want to know what, what happened, who are the stars, what lessons to be learned. And there was nothing. There was no articles. There were no books. There was nothing. And I started, I got a small research grant to buy a cheap tape recorder and a pedal-activated transcriber, uh, and I started doing oral histories with the, the old guys who were still alive. Wow. Uh, and I went in and I basically kind of said, okay, I, you may want to understand the history of this. And I said, uh, it all starts with Penn Station, right? And they said, no. And <laughs> they got, it, well, they didn't, yeah, no, I coined the myth. But anyway, uh, they, you know, they basically kept talking about Moses. Drink. Um, and, and I thought these guys had kind of, you know, they were old, maybe they weren't remembering things correctly, and, and out came these incredible stories of Bard and McEnany and people like that battling Moses. So it was a process of delving into that, but I realized that preservation, you know, wasn't keeping its own history. I mean, we were like Dalmatians. Anytime a building is endangered, you run out to save it. So we're saving everybody's history because it's valuable, you learn from it, it's important for society. We weren't preserving our own history, and it was the intellectual capital of the preservation movement. And it also documented your point that preservation movement is, it's not a law that some policymaker said, you know, we need to put this on the city of New York. This was a law that came from the people. Right. Uh, Kent Barwick, I think, usually says that there are only two laws that the people really demanded. One was the Landmarks Law, and the other was the Pooper-Scooper Law. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's true about the Pooper-Scooper Law, but I do know that, I mean, the Landmarks Law was basically the people, and, you know, that's why it took so long in the 1950s, identifying the buildings, yeah. building a constituency for preservation, yeah. which has grown and is still essential today, because the Landmarks Law is only as good as the people of New York demand it to be applied. We just have to say thank you for not, I mean, not only just being here, for, but for everything that you have done to help uh, preserve the city, to preserve so many places and neighborhoods and, and city, and just for being an anchor of the preservation movement. Thank so you. really, thank you. Thank you. Unfortunately, um, you're about to have some more esteemed company. More anchors. <laughs> yes. More anchors. Lots more, more anchors yes. are coming your way. We're going to be joined in just a minute by Peg Breen, the president of the New York Landmarks Conservancy, and Simeon Bankoff, the executive director of the Historic Districts Council. We're going to go just a bit deeper into the nuts and bolts of the landmarking process, the benefits, the controversies surrounding the whole thing. We'll go there right after this. Today's show is brought to you by Bowery Boys Walks, the official walking tours of the Bowery Boys podcast. What are you doing next weekend? Or any weekend starting in March, Greg and I are working with some of the best professional tour guides in the city to bring our podcast into the streets on Saturdays and Sundays. And we just added a new batch of tours, including 
The Hidden History of Greenwich Village, Central Park History, Edith Wharton's New York, Ladies Mile Cast Iron Architecture, and our two newest tours that we're very excited about, The Ghosts of the Elevated Railroads, and Brooklyn Bridge History with Chris Roebling. That's right. You can walk the Brooklyn Bridge and get the inside story of its history from Chris Roebling, the the great-great-grandson of Washington and Emily Roebling. Space is limited. These are small groups. So book your tours today at BoweryBoysWalks.com and get ready to walk through time. And now back to the show. All right, we're back. We're about to get into the nuts and bolts of the landmarking process. Peg Breen is the president of the New York Landmarks Conservancy. And Simeon Bankoff is the executive director of the Historic Districts Council, which is celebrating their 50th anniversary this yes. year. Wow. Thank you for joining us. We're honored. Starting with you, Peg, can you just give the audience a brief overview of the organization? Like, what is the role of the New York Landmarks Conservancy? Sure. We're merely 47 years old. (laughs) (laughs) But who's counting? Um, We, of course, support landmarking. We help people get individual buildings and historic districts landmarked, but we were always meant to go beyond it and actually help people fix their buildings. So we have a range of financial and technical programs. We've loaned and granted like $53 million through the years. A lot of our loans were out here in Brooklyn before um, before you became Brooklyn. Uh, we have a sacred sites program that gives grants to landmark religious institutions all over the state. We have an emergency grant program for nonprofits. And I have a technical staff that helps property owners for free figure out what's going on with their buildings. So I think we're handy to know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we're going to come back to you with some questions about that. Um, but first, Simeon, if you could also tell us what it is. Well, first of all, welcome. Thank and you. could you explain a little bit what the Historic Districts Council is? Is it sort of like the Landmarks Conservancy, but, some, but for historic districts? Is it different? What is it? it, it uh, we're slightly different. We actually, both the Landmarks Conservancy and the Historic Districts Council came out of the efforts of the Municipal Arts Society, we were both uh, committees that were then spun off into individual organizations. My organization is the Citywide Advocate for New York's Historic Neighborhoods. We work with over 500 neighborhood-based community groups throughout all five boroughs on efforts to preserve, enhance, uh, protect, and celebrate their historic properties, buildings, parks. We do this through efforts of community development, community strategies, uh, strategic advice, a lot of advocacy on the ground, advocacy and education. We do about, oh, it seems like at least one educational program a week, many tours. We are on the phone with people constantly meeting elected officials, working with them to uh, teach them what is zoning, what is landmarking, what are the tools they can have to actually empower and take control of their own communities. So to this is just to the to the whole stage, please, because uh, this is a very fundamental question, and that is the idea: like, why is landmarking important to New York today, like right now? Obviously, it's important to visitors who want to see a bunch of pretty buildings. But how and why is it important to New Yorkers? Most of our beloved landmarks are the institutions, like the museums we want to go to, the churches and synagogues um, we go to, the neighborhoods that we want to live in. Um, it's, it's, it anchors us. New York has the greatest collection of architecture of any city in the country. Uh, we have buildings here from the early 1600s on, 
And it's those rich layers that really make walking around New York just, just so wonderful. And it gives you a real sense of place, and it gives us a real sense of home. The historic neighborhoods and the historic buildings of New York are really what create the New York of our mind. When people think about New York City, they think about, you know, everybody, you say New York City, and everyone has, you know, a dozen or so images that flash through your head. And those properties, if there wasn't a landmarks law, might someday disappear like dust. The point is that um, we are lucky enough to have this very powerful tool that enables us to help preserve the things that really create the city that we love and allow us to build on it and enhance that. And so just a question then, because we're talking about a lot of, I mean, landmarks, we know they have to be, or they are normally old and somehow significant. What, what are the, what's the actual criteria for a building or a neighborhood to be landmarked or designated a historic district? Well, we'll split this up, sure. I'm sure, but yeah. <laughs> a building only has to be 30 years old, so um, you can be quite young to be a landmark. Uh, Most in, of us could be landmarks if we were buildings. <laughs> yes, yes. We do research, however. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to continue your thought, it's so only 30 years old, but... But um, it's a question of architectural or cultural significance. So um, they look at... Um, is this a particular type of building? Are there many of them? Are there not so many of them? Um, historic districts have a cohesiveness to them, even though some of the, the buildings may vary, so that you still have a, a sense of place. And I think that there is much more um, push now to, to really get into cultural landmarks and landmarks that mean something to different um, groups that live in the city that may or may not be you know, beautiful buildings. So we've gone beyond the, isn't this a beautiful old building stage, into what is culturally important to us as Although well. Although there still are many beautiful old buildings that are unprotected. The important thing also is that um, a property is only a landmark or a, in a historic district if it has been designated by an act of the city through the Landmarks Preservation Commission. Otherwise, it's just an old, pretty building or an old building or a building that you feel very strongly about, but it's not protected. So that's something that people often get confused by. They say, well, how can this store go away? How can this building go away? It's a landmark. And you say, well, did the Landmarks Commission take a vote in a public hearing that was then later affirmed by the city council to make it into a designated landmark or part of a historic district? And if the answer is no, then it's not a landmark. The genius of the Landmarks Law is you could have written a law that very specifically called out the criteria for what a landmark was. Mm -hmm. And if they'd done that in 1965, that criteria would have excluded so many of the things we've come to appreciate. Mm -hmm. So part of what makes the Landmarks Law work so well, but also adds to the controversy, is that uh, what is a landmark is basically what that sitting Landmarks Commission at that mm -hmm. moment in time will designate and the city council will approve. You had mentioned earlier, for example, the Empire State Building was only designated in 1981 it was. Mm -hmm. Imagine New York City without the Empire State Building. 
yeah. or without the interiors of that wonderful, wonderful Art Deco lobby. But it took a while for people to actually appreciate that and understand that this is something that we want to keep with us as we move into the future. And just because something important happened there, that's something that I get a little confused on. Like, if, if there's historical significance for a building, you know, like so-and-so signed a treaty in the blah, blah, blah in the basement, does, does that... I mean, I can see a marker might be there, right? What's the difference between, I guess, when something just gets like a historical plaque? Uh, it's the versus- Landmarks Commission. Uh, um, the Chester Allen Author House, for example, 121 uh, Lexington Avenue, which is the only house in New York City where a sitting U.S. president was actually took the oath of office. Right. Um, yeah, it's also known as Calustians, if anyone yeah. ever goes there. <laughs> uh, the Landmarks Commission has... Re- several times refused to designate it because they feel it is too altered. Wow. The, the history also of the, the commission has evolved over time, right? So when the commission was first staffed, it was totally staffed by architectural historians. And so they would look at a building through that lens. And so I remember overhearing hearing a conversation decades ago where a community group was trying to get a Revolutionary War cemetery designated and the commission staff said, it doesn't have any architectural style. And of course, you know, the what? law itself allows the commission to designate on the grounds of history, on the grounds of aesthetics and beauty, and on cultural significance. On the grounds of a cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, who, who are these people? <laughs> okay, wait, let's back up. We're going to back up here. Let's just, let's walk through this, I'm sure, extremely pleasant process of landmarking a building. Let's just say that I have, um, there's a particular building in, on Orchard Street in the Lower East Side, which is mostly unprotected, that fits all these criteria. That's an absolutely just primo landmarking success story to be. Where do I even start with this? Where do I get, where do we start? You could start by asking the commission to um, evaluate the building. And you can, you can get a slip from them that lays it out, what you'd have to do. But um, you get them to give you their opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk to the owner of the building. You talk to the community. You talk to the community board. You talk to the elected officials from the area. It's a whole campaign yeah. um, to help persuade um, the Landmarks Commission that this is a building that should be designated. The campaign is the right word. I mean, you really have to get a groundswell, right? There has to be a constituency mm-hmm. for a building. It's, uh, the Landmarks Law does involve a political process in the sense that the ultimate decision is made by a political body, the city council. Before that, it was the Board of Estimate. And so that, that's actually part of what was built into the law. So it, in order for that process to work, the commission, when it designates something, also finds it comfortable, at least, to know mm-hmm. <laughs> that there's mm-hmm. political support for it. And for a number of years, uh, people wondered, why wasn't there more landmarks in Queens? And at that moment in time, not that the borough didn't have many eligible sites, but at that time, the borough president, and that was when the Board of Estimate was around. You can read the power broker to learn more about the Board of Estimate. Um, you know, in Who is that about? There was <laughs> Moses, time for a drink. Um, you know, and there wasn't, a, the politics were wrong. And so the commission, why would it use its limited resources and staff to put forward buildings that would not ultimately pass the political test? That's why public involvement is so critical in landmark preservation. Right, and that's for an individual landmark, of which there are 1,400, however many. But, Simeon, mm-hmm. does that, is that process the same for historic districts? Uh, trebly so. It's the, <laughs> it's the easiest thing in the world uh, for a government agency to say no. 
government by its nature does not necessarily wish to take on more responsibility, particularly by entering into an eternal compact with a private property owner that they are now going to be partners in regulating private property. So you really need to show this government agency that not only is your neighborhood meritorious in terms of its architectural, social, cultural value, but that the people who live there, both the property owners and the people who work there and the people who actually live in there, um, which translates into voters also, really want this to happen, that there is both the intellectual case for it and then there's the sort of emotional political case, like what Tony was talking about, so that it takes a really long time to get that going. And what if one of those proprietors, property owners, like if we were back to your example, if we were doing uh-huh. a um, Lower East Side tenement district, you know, between Canal and uh, Broome on Orchard, what if one of the property owners who has a really old tenement mm-hmm. doesn't want to be in that district that's being proposed? Can they opt out? No. Uh, <laughs> yes and no. It's, it, it becomes an interesting question. And actually, defining the boundaries of a historic district is one of the toughest things that uh, the Landmarks Commission does and one of the hardest things for a community to do because uh, usually, 99% of the time, the boundaries of a designated historic district need to be contiguous. You can't hop over buildings so that they sort of draw a line with regards to the physical integrity and also the historic integrity of the buildings up until the point that it no longer makes sense. And that's when you hit, you know, a lot of parking lots on the edges of historic districts <laughs> and things like that. But, you know, they have designated, they've included parking lots yeah. in yeah. historic districts yeah. in the South Street Seaport, for instance. And because at some point they're likely to be built on, and within, if they're within a district, you at least have a landmarks commission that is going to try to make it the best building possible that actually fits within mm, the context yeah. of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Peg, since you work with so many homeowners that live in landmark buildings, is just economically speaking, is landmarking, is it good for a property? Is it good for a whole neighborhood? Yes, um, it keeps, it maintains property values um, throughout the neighborhood. And landmarking also gets, uh, often gets a bad rap. And people say, oh, I don't want to be landmarked because it's going to be so much more expensive. Um, trust me, as a member of my co-op board, the buildings department is so much worse than landmarks could ever be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are times, I remember um, getting yelled at by somebody from a, a large co-op because landmarks made their contractors stop and redo the mortar and it cost them $1,200 more, and they were furious. That $1,200 um, probably saved them a lot of money over the long run because they were finally using a mortar that was going to work with the building. So it's really important to have contractors who know what they're doing in historic buildings, and we keep a whole list of people who know what they're doing. And uh, what might seem like a little bit more now over the long haul saves you money and protects your building over the longer run. And if they don't, I mean, is there like landmarks police that are going to head out, you know, if you, if you don't use the right color or you don't use the right mortar or whatever? Can you throw them in the slammer is what we're trying to get at? <laughs> Some people should, but no. <laughs> um, no, I mean, if you're going through the landmarks process and you're getting approval at LPC, uh, when we work with homeowners, um, we, we know who the contractors are, we know what the rules and regs are, so we work 
with them as almost owner's rep to make sure they're doing it correctly. Mm -hmm. And then the Landmarks um, Commission is looking over and improving plans. So by the time you get through with our help in the Landmarks Commission, your contractor knows mm -hmm. what he or she is supposed to be doing. But there is an enforcement provision. So when there is a bad apple mm -hmm. uh, and somebody is letting a protected building be demolished by, through neglect, the commission does have the capability and ability to pursue that. Hmm. They do it on rare occasion. Some of us wish those occasions were less rare uh, because <laughs> the commission does not like to have a heavy-handed approach. But indeed, if push comes to shove and the commission has the will, they have the legal ability to, to protect mm -hmm. a building, and that's what the law is all about. You know, and there are local groups throughout the city. Obviously, this commission can't get out and inspect 21,000 buildings throughout right. the city to see what's going on. Um, but a lot of the neighborhood groups, if mm -hmm. there's something egregious going on or a, all of a sudden a rooftop addition is appearing out of nowhere, right. that will alert, alert the commission. But um, no police. It's usually mm -hmm. somebody interested in his or her own community. How would we even know that it's a landmark building? I mean, there isn't like a... There's nothing that identifies a landmark structure necessarily from the outside, right? There's nothing that I can walk up to and a be special like, oh, glow, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Well, most people know if they're in a historic district, yeah. and there are historic district signs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, throughout so the city. So look for those brown signs. Place. Actually, terracotta. terracotta. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, I have been landmark schooled. <laughs> that is a diss. That is a diss. Yes, um, terracotta. Anyway, uh, anyway, where were we? Uh, uh, I'm going to uh, turn uh, terracotta. And it's uh, like, yeah, that was like... I'd, I'd like to also just insert here, there is, um, the Lammers Commission is a reactive agency in the sense that they react to proposals to historic properties. There is no requirement to immediately restore your building. There is no requirement to change your building if once you are landmarked. The point is that over the course of time, when you're doing necessary building maintenance, that you will do it appropriately to keep the historic appearance. And if possible, you know, you might want to reverse some of the more unfortunate excesses of the 1970s that happened. <laughs> um, what? But you know, the, the other thing is, is that the real estate community uh, always says that preservation is freezing the city in amber, you know, mm -hmm. and nothing can ever change. But what people don't realize is even if you're in a historic district, there will be additions to buildings because New York is always going to grow and evolve. And the commission allows certain rooftop additions or rear yard additions or changes to a, to a building. And, but hopefully uh, it's done within the context of the area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's you're not frozen in time once you're a landmark. My office is in a land, in a building in a historic district, and that block has been a construction zone for the last five years, mm -hmm. with mil literally tens of millions of dollars of restoration work going on voluntarily. So if people also think preservation doesn't help generate economic growth for the city, they haven't been paying attention. We <laughs> happen to have done. Oh. The first ever um, economic report on the benefits of historic preservation in New York. This was in 2016, and we're, we're updating it now. And um, even in 2016, about $850,000 a year is being spent by uh, landmark property owners um, to, to maintain their buildings. There's probably about 5,000 local jobs created um, through preservation. 
and at the same time, you're maintaining property values. So there's a big economic plus to preservation. Uh, there are interesting critiques towards landmarking in the historic district movements in general. Um, a lot of things you hear, for instance, is landmarking causes gentrification. It doesn't. That it, that it like, uh, prevents affordable housing. It doesn't. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so those, are not, those are not true. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, now that we've got that covered, yeah, okay. um, <laughs> now let's talk about Art Deco, like you all really want to hear about. Um, <laughs> your questions of gentrification are a very complex issue, and um, gentrification is a very complex process. Mm-hmm. The fact is there have been numerous studies done that truly show that there is absolutely no causation between landmark designation or any kind of, of recognition of a historic property and uh, the gentrification and, more importantly, the displacement of lower-income people. Most unfortunately, all of New York is really suffering underneath this uh, massive affordable housing crunch and the displacement of people of lower income. What happens is that, and this has been shown, that if areas happen to be designated as historic districts or have some level of design guidelines that as more money pours into those areas, the historic buildings remain and actually get improved as opposed to what would happen otherwise, which is the historic buildings would get destroyed and new market rate housing would happen, such as what happened in Williamsburg, Greenpoint, after the major rezoning. There's there literally, I know that there are one or two apologists for the real estate industry out there who have been making a living trying to create a causality that just doesn't exist. In fact, it is the citywide upzonings that are causing the greatest displacement now and mm-hmm. the greatest concern, mm-hmm. um, you know, because um, they're, they're drastically changing neighborhoods and you're going to lose a lot of old buildings and a lot of the current population in the process. Mm-hmm. And you're finding that throughout. Uh, additionally, and just one final point, yeah. is that certain areas of New York City have been, have been historic districts for decades and decades and decades, and we're only starting to see major gentrification sweeping through in the last 10 or 15 years, and that's really a concern. You know, it's a concern in Fort Greene and Clinton Hill, in Bed-Stuy. Fort Greene and Clinton Hill uh, were designated in the 70s and early 1980s. Uh, there was a, a Bed-Stuy historic district that was designated in the 1970s. Park Slope has been a historic district since 1972. There's a, a sort of a, a, a slight twist on this concept too that I'd like to, to talk about, which is the idea of we can preserve a historic district, we can preserve all the buildings within it, and it can look absolutely beautiful from the moment that those buildings were first built. But if there was a specific culture that went through those, those buildings, let's say, as an example, East Harlem is an example, Bed-Stuy is another example, you know, there was a, the, the cultural turning point of those neighborhoods, which enlivened those buildings, is lost, or we're losing it, right? So... Is there a responsibility in landmarking to help protect the culture of those neighborhoods? Is that beyond the purview? Is there something else we should be doing? It's, it's beyond the purview as it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, there is a study group now on NoHo Soho and yeah. to see if they should be rezoned because right now they're zoned for light manufacturing when they're very you know, residential neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And Soho, of course... Um, the artists helped create Soho and lived in the lofts illegally and then legally. And so there's a, a strong feeling for the residents now during this process that artists should be protected. And you think, no one's figured out exactly how. 
So if you protect mm -hmm. artists in Soho, then who should we protect someplace else? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a very difficult hmm. question. The, the Landmarks Law, as written, does not allow the commission to preserve or protect use. And I think you know, there's only so much you can expect a particular mm -hmm. law to do, mm -hmm. which doesn't say that preservation as a movement shouldn't and isn't exploring oh. other devices as we see neighborhood businesses leaving, as we see so many of the things that make a neighborhood livable, mm -hmm. we need other tools. What the Landmarks Law does is it's, it's protecting the stage set. Mm -hmm. The activity that goes on in it, we need other tools to protect. Well, um, we do have to kind of wrap it up here, but we started the show with a little bit of a game for the audience, and we wanted to play another twist on the game to wrap up the show, just sort of like putting on, you know, your futuristic hat for a second and, and looking at 25 years in the future, um, at the year 2045, there will be many more landmarks added to that list. There will be many more neighborhoods protected, landmarks protected, that we walk by every day and we don't think of them as landmarks. We just think it's some kind of new building, probably. Do you have any predictions about what we might be seeing every day right now that a future generation will think of as a landmark? It's funny that you should mention that, actually. This year, for the Historic Districts Council's 50th birthday, because I feel much more comfortable saying birthday than anniversary, um, <laughs> we are going to be putting together a list of buildings that have been built in the last 50 years that could potentially inform this discussion, realizing that 30 years from now, we're going to be fighting for some of these buildings. So I think that we're going to be seeing, we'll probably have a reappreciation re for postmodernism that we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, I think that, you know, brutalism, there will be, there are a couple, there's some, there's some okay Let's brutalism. Let's hear for brutalism. <laughs> right? You need a little bit. It's a specific scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the sort of large art park kind of places like Lincoln Center, for example, which is only partially not really protected. Um, and I think that we're also going to be examining new ideas of what Peg had mentioned, of culturally significant places, things that are important to us or we don't even understand are important to us now. I mean, is Zuccotti Park going to be an important site um, for the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, is Socrates Sculpture Park going to be an important site that we're going to try to talk about? There's the High Line, which is not protected. And, and may, I, uh, may I just ask, will this list one day include Trump Tower? <laughs> I mean, talk about historically important and of a certain very specific kind of architecture. Oh, very specific. <laughs> very yeah. specific kind of architecture. You know, uh, as I like to remind people, um, Trump, before he was president, obviously, bought 40 Wall Street. And the commission wanted to landmark it. And he was absolutely opposed. But by the time he got through talking with the commissioner and going on a tour with her, he actually went to the Landmarks Commission and testified in person in favor of landmarking the building. Mm, wow. Of course, this is the same Trump who destroyed the freezes on Bonwood Tower. Right. <laughs> but, that, but this was after, so I mean, there, there have been moments. Gross. There have been moments. Gross. Are you, are you suggesting that maybe Trump is influenced by the people around him? <laughs> well, you know, he also bought Mar-a-Lago and gave a uh, gave an easement to the National Trust. So you know, there's good in everybody. Yeah. There is there. Yeah. There is a potential but, preservationist in everyone. I, I think yeah. it. Well, yeah. I think it actually proves the point that preservation is good business when Donald Trump starts doing. 
Uh, well, the other, may if I just may say, preservation is not political because there are people in all parties that support preservation. Yeah. And that, that's what we look for. That's right. That's right. So how can people get involved in your organizations? Like, what do you want from us? Like, what, what can we do? Well, you know, we're coming up on citywide elections. And most of the council is going to change. We're going to get a new mayor. We're going to get a new controller, et cetera. And one of the shifts in preservation is that we're doing a lot more now in, in land use and zoning because all these up zonings are impacting and going to, we're going to lose buildings. Um, so we're trying to get together right. a, a citywide coalition of people to make sure that all these candidates know that preservation is an issue and preservation matters. And so if you join our organizations, you're going to get alerts, you're going to get information on you know, up to the minute, what's going on in preservation. And we're gonna call on all of you to get out with candidates and let them know that you care about preservation and voters care about preservation and they'd better too. If there's a building you wanna save, the, probably the best thing you can do is work hard to elect a city council member who will support your effort to get it designated. And then elect a mayor who's at least not hostile to historic preservation. Oh. <laughs> not, <And the>, <laughs> not political. And the one I didn't time, name names. <laughs> and the one time that anybody who is uh, in sort of the business of public office has to listen to people is when they're trying to get into public office. So they will take your calls. Then they will show up at your rallies. They will knock on. They will listen to you politely as you tell them why they're wrong and why they should vote in a certain way because they need your vote. And that's a very, very powerful moment. And that's also a moment where, where it also circumvents the whole property owner thing because, again, renters are voters. People who live in neighborhoods need to have their own voices. Even if you don't own that property, you are not a second-class citizen. Amen. Yeah. Um, on behalf of Tom, we, it's been a pleasure and honor to be with the three of you on stage. A huge thank you to our guests today for breaking it down, explaining the landmark process. It's here for Anthony Wood, Ted Green, and Simeon Bancroft. And a huge thanks to our audience today for coming out and getting schooled with us today. <laughs> um, and to the wonderful team here at the Bell House and the Brooklyn Podcast Festival, it's been an honor yeah. to spend this landmark hour together. <laughs> Please visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have photos of all types of New York City landmarks large and small. And a huge thanks to those who support us on Patreon.com slash your small monthly contributions make it possible for us to dedicate all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys. We couldn't make the show without you. Supporters on Patreon have exclusive access to our Patreon-only podcast called The Bowery Boys Takeout. In this week's episode, Tom and I will be discussing three or four of New York City's weirdest landmarks. Weirdest but still culturally significant landmarks. <laughs> so... Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye-bye. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. 
And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.